This is the podcast for RUF at App State. Everyone is welcome and no one is unexpected. For more information, visit us at appstate.ruf.org. If this is your first time here, there might be some strange things going on in here, but just focus and keep your eyes up here and not here. Uh, I'm really glad you're here, especially if this is your first time. And we've been going this entire semester through, uh, we've been going through the Ten Commandments. And the ten, these Ten Commandments, these are ten central rules, and they are even, on some level, eternal. They last forever because they centrally reflect who God is, his character. And we try to make it clear every single week that these are not instructions for how you become a Christian. As Luke just said, that is placing your faith, your trust in Jesus alone as Savior. These are for people who are saved by God's grace, his undeserved kindness and love. And this shows them how to live in thriving life as we find it in Jesus. So these invite us to look at a portrait of Jesus, to see him in these commandments and learn to follow him into the good life. So let's look now at Exodus 20, 17. This is the 10th commandment. Exodus 20, 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Life is a bit like the fire Festival. The fire Festival, which was held in 2017, was going to be this decadent music festival, the greatest and most luxurious music festival, where those who were willing to dish out thousands of dollars could go and spend time and party with the most wealthy and the celebrities that the fire Festival promised would be there. But when the attendees showed up at the festival, which was held on this private island in the Bahamas, they weren't greeted by Pusha T, and they weren't greeted by luxury. They were greeted by rain-soaked mattresses and a lack of toilets. The total false advertising campaign. And I don't think it's, it's not pessimistic or just being negative to say that so much of life is like that. The things that are held out to us advertise as these are the places where you're going to find satisfaction, contentment. Often really aren't that. They're just rain-soaked mattresses that we spend too much money on. The things that are held out to us and advertise as this is where you're going to find fullness of life, power and pleasure, comfort, acclaim. They're letdowns. We're sold a narrative that when you get to college, indulge all of your desires, do whatever you feel, find yourself, and it's going to be epic. And you're going to be so happy, and you're going to know who you are. It's going to be awesome. You'll be content. And you find over time that it's not really like that. It's a letdown. It's false advertising. And that experience of being promised one thing about what makes life satisfying and then finding it's the exact opposite leads to a profound sense of discontentment, let down. Our staff after fall conference went to this restaurant in Hendersonville to, to celebrate the end of fall conference. And we were really excited about it because it was supposed to be this great restaurant. And Danny ordered shrimp and grits, which is an exciting thing to order. It's a good thing to be excited about. But when it came, it was so flavorless 
It was like he had told the chef, I'm, a, hey, I'm allergic to flavor. Or he said, I want it to taste like I have COVID. Can you do that? Intense craving met by severe letdown and discontentment. So much of our lives is, is filled with seeking fulfillment, seeking to be happy, seeking to be content. And all the things that, that we believe are going to get us there, the power, the comfort, the pleasure, all of it in the end just leaves us discontent. The, the sense that things are tasteless. The flavor isn't there. Marie Antoinette was the queen of France who was famous for getting all of the luxury and decadence that she ever could possibly want. She had all the money for it. And that at some point in her life, she was so soul sick and disappointed that she said, nothing tastes. And the more that we seek soul satisfaction from the things advertised by the world, as this is how you get it, the more we find not only that things don't taste quite as good, but they just don't taste. The more we crave, the more things taste less. And the more things taste less, we crave more and more and try to, to fill ourselves with it. More craving, more disappointment, more profound discontentment. We find ourselves really a lot like Jenny Lind, the character in The Greatest Showman, who is she's seeking the path to the good life through all of the ways that are available to her as a celebrity. And she sings all the shine of a thousand spotlights, all the stars we steal from this night sky will never be enough. Never, never. And to people like that, people like me and you who crave and then face disappointment, the 10th commandment surprisingly offers a word of hope and a word of promise, which is that God is more than enough. God is more than enough. And I want to I show you this, just give you a window into considering it by looking at two aspects of the 10th commandment. We're going to look at what this commandment is drawing us away from and what it's drawing us toward. So we're going to look at coveting and we're going to look at contentment. One, coveting, two, contentment. So first let's look at coveting. God in this commandment, he forbids coveting. But what is that? When we read it, it seems to have something to do with wanting, with desire. You can read up there, Exodus 20, 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So this seems to have something to do with the way that we want someone else's spouse or their possessions or their power or influence having servants. So what is God forbidding? Is God forbidding desire or just wanting any of these things in general? But taking the Bible as a whole, the answer would be no. The Bible is not forbidding desire. It's not saying, hey, just stop wanting things. Christianity, unlike certain other world religions, does not advocate suppressing or killing desire. We're made to desire. Desire is good. Well, then what is coveting all about? What is God saying no to? God is saying no to desire gone wrong. And so the, the other thing we need to see is we may read this and, and think that it's saying, hey, you're actually just aiming too high. Don't covet or desire your neighbor's house, but if it's a condo, aim for that. It's not actually the exact opposite. It's not that our desires are too strong, but that they're too weak. We set our heart looking for fulfillment on things that are too shallow, too temporary, and insufficient to make us whole, make us content. So what is coveting? I would put the definition this way for your consideration. I would say that coveting is desiring what's not rightfully yours as though it were yours by right. 
It's desiring what isn't rightfully yours as though it were yours by right. So what does that look like? I mean, first, it might mean setting your heart's desire, setting your aim on stuff that belongs to other people. So it's not just looking at your neighbor's house and thinking, hey, that's a nice house. It's looking at your neighbor's house and becoming focused and intent on it and thinking, if I had his house with that landscaping, then I would be happy. If I had her gifts or her life, then I would be happy. But then it also, coveting involves discontentment with what I do have. It means setting your focus and tension on what other people have and thinking, if I had that, then I would be happy. But it also means looking at what I have and just becoming dissatisfied. I look at the, the things that, that God has put in my life, the gifts I have, the body I have, the opportunities I have, the college I'm at, and nothing tastes. But then I look at the things that God has put in my neighbor's life, all of his possessions and his money and his opportunities and the outcomes, what, what's going on in his life. And, and it's not only that it just doesn't taste good to me. I also look at it and I become bitter. I look at his life and what he has, and I don't enter into the celebration. I look at my, my friend's life, and she gets into this program, or she starts dating that nice boy, and I'm really not that happy about it. And in fact, there's some twisted part of my heart that when that she breaks up, maybe you start to feel like, okay, things are back to normal. What does coveting do to our hearts? It turns them cold. Probably the most scandalous Oscars moment ever was not the recent slap. It was in 2017, again, when it was announced that La La Land had won Best Picture. And so they announced Best Picture is, is La La Land. And the producers from La La Land, they go up there, and the crew from La La Land, the movie, start to go up there. And they're halfway, the producers are halfway through their acceptance speech when all of a sudden someone runs up, up there and tells them that they didn't win. Moonlight, another movie, won. And so the La La Land crew, this whole crew, have to get, kind of put down the statues, and they have to awkwardly scoot off the stage while the Moonlight people, understandably, are, are celebrating and running on stage to receive their award. The La La Land people, they're looking at what they believe was theirs by right. This belongs to me. And all of a sudden, they're seeing it taken away. And so we can imagine that not only were they not entirely able to enter into the joy of the moment for the Moonlight crew, but it wouldn't be surprising if their hearts were cold. This is what coveting looks like for us. We act, we, we understandably, with the Bolling crew, what was understandable for them, we take that posture and we apply it toward other people. We look at the good things in their lives and we think, that should be mine. I look at my friend and, and I see that, that he is doing well in a class and I'm not able to celebrate because I'm not doing it as well. And why shouldn't I do as well as he is? Why shouldn't I have the gifts and the body and the opportunity that he has? So what does covetousness do to us? It destroys love. Because love, as God defines it, is loving your neighbor as yourself. And loving your neighbor as yourself means that you, you want them to... Uh, you want for them what you yourself want. And you want people to rejoice with you in the good things that happen to you and be able to grieve with you in the defeats. But what does covetousness do? It's, it strips you from the ability to do that. 
It makes you look at someone else's success and you start to feel like their win is your loss. The good for them takes away happiness for you so that you treat other people as a competitor. But love is all about loving other people as you yourself want to be loved. And covetousness destroys that. When my neighbor does well, and I look at the opportunities and the outcomes of what's going on in their life, I think that that should be mine. I should be there. I should have that. And covetousness, it also destroys joy. Because it takes away from you the joy of being able to look at someone else's genuine gift and be able to say, I'm so glad that you can do that, even though I can't. It strips from me the joy of being able to, to look at something that happens, that goes well for someone else, and be able to say, I'm genuinely so happy for you. Let's go out tonight and let's celebrate. It takes you away from that. And it also, it, it takes away from you the ability to see the good things, causes for joy that are right in front of you. It makes you obsessed with craving more and more and more so that you miss out on being able to taste the good meal or the friendly conversation or that meaningful time with a roommate. And it strips you from the, the ability to be able to enjoy that and to live in, with gratitude for it. Covetousness, it, it really fuels the advertising and it feeds off of it that tells you that if you just had a little bit more, a little bit more pleasure, a little bit more money, then it would be enough. And it never is. That's never enough. Coveting, it only increases our craving and then it, it makes us desire other people's things as though they were ours by rights. And then it teaches us to believe the lie that God is not enough when he is more than enough. So God is forbidding coveting, but secondly, looks like he's, he's inviting us towards something much better, which is contentment. So let's look at the second contentment. To be content is to be satisfied, right? Instead of craving more and more, contentment is about being at peace with who God has made you and what he has given you. But what, what does it really mean and how do we become content? When we think of contentment, maybe we think of being at the, the table with our family and we complain about our meal being a little bit cold and a parent says to you, you should be content with what you have. And your parent, the parent might be right, but it doesn't actually make you satisfied with the meal. It doesn't make you content just to say, be content, because it sounds like stop whining. So how do we actually become content? Well, first, I mean, what is contentment not? Uh, drawing from an author named Melissa Kruger is very helpful on this. Contentment does not mean a life free from fear or pain or from care, from caring about these things. Jesus, who is the founder of Christianity, he was fully content all of his life. And yet he endured a lot of trouble. He suffered to the point of death and he endured fear. So being content doesn't mean your life having all of the things that are difficult stripped away and having your circumstances perfected right here, right now. Uh, but it also doesn't mean, contentment doesn't mean an absence of longing or desire. To be content doesn't mean that you have to take, say, a desire to be married and say, I, just, I don't need to feel that. I just need to kill that desire, and it's wrong for me to even want it because I can't have it right now. Well, no, to, to want to be married is in itself a good desire. And so being content doesn't mean that you suppress the desires that God, the good desires that God has put into you. So what is it? What is contentment? And here I'm drawing from a pastor named Eric Raymond. Contentment which is, 
highlights the, the nature of the Ten Commandments. It's not, it's not all just about do, do this and do this and external things. It really is aiming at the heart because contentment is internal. It's an internal spirit or posture. But it's also, it's gracious. This isn't a posture that you just have to force yourself into like an itchy sweater. It's something that God puts into your heart. It's a new heart where he changes your desires so that you want what he wants because what he wants is most beautiful and it's best. So it's an internal, it's gracious, and it's characterized by quiet. We read earlier Psalm 131, which you can read again, where the author says this, but I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. So what's going on here? A newborn won't get quiet until it is fed by the mother or milk. But a wean child is, is a child that has been able to become accustomed to food besides what her mother can provide naturally. And so the, the unweaned child cries all of the time until it gets what it wants. But the weaned child is actually able to be content simply in the presence of her mother. Being with her mother, she is quiet simply because her mother is there. And that's enough. And so the psalmist is is saying, this is what contentment looks like. It's a posture of quiet, of being satisfied and full simply because you're in the presence of God, your father. No matter your circumstance, in the good and the bad, if he's with you, you can be content. This is what this contentment is available to us, regardless of who we are and where we are or what we have. God invites us to know a satisfaction that he puts into our hearts by his grace and that quiets our cravings so that we really are at peace. Philippians 4.13 is a very famous verse among athletes. And the author Paul writes, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I mean, I think it's, it's often used on some level to communicate something like, I'm gonna blast through these hang cleans because God gives me nutrients and strength or something. But what it's missing when we read it that way is just the basic context, which is that Paul is in prison as he writes this. And the full context of the verses before it is this. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The all things Paul is referring to here is enduring hunger and poverty and need. And he says, I can do all of that. I can endure all of that and be content. I can have nothing and be content. And how is that possible? He says, because it's Christ who strengthens me, Christ who fills me. There was this semi-viral clip earlier this year of these prisoners in this maximum security prison and these Over a hundred men are singing at the top of their voice with ecstatic joy singing How He Loves, which is a Christian worship song. And these men in this maximum security prison, I imagine many of them, maybe probably most of them will never get out of the prison. They will never vacation again. They won't have a closet full of clothes. They won't get to retire. What possessions they do have is just what they are allowed right then. And yet the video shows them full of peace and a visible contentment with nothing. I think when we, when we look at a video like that, I think part of the cynical side of our heart says, well, I mean, these guys have nothing. So of course they're satisfied with religion because what else do they have? 
And so we condescendingly pat their heads and we say, well, if that delusion works for you, well, what if, what if that condescension toward people like this who have nothing and are at peace when we have so much and are so often dissatisfied, what if that condescension is actually covering up a fear that these men have found true contentment and the only true contentment that's available? And what if the fear is that if we were really going to get that, we would have to become like them? That's possible at least. And how do we become like them? Well, the path that the world puts out for us of, you know, this is how you have a satisfied life. It's a, it's a path of getting and attaining and winning. And you're getting things that are yours by right. You deserve more, right? So give yourself more, treat yourself. The Bible gives us a path that is very different. It's a path that the world looks at as absolute weakness. It's a path of, of need and desperate need. It's a path of recognizing in humility and in brokenness that we are desperately needy and God owes us nothing. But into that place of desperate need, God pours out more than enough for us because he gives us himself. That's true contentment. So to be content, like Paul, like the author of Psalm 131, we have to learn it. Because we look at this and think, this is so, how do we possibly... How can we become like Paul? How can we be content no matter what situation we're in, no matter who we are, what opportunities we have, what gifts we have, how much money we have? We have to learn to become like a child and become weak like a child. To become, become like a child and trusting that in ways that you cannot under, understand, God is good and he is your father and he is fully in control of every detail of your life. Who you are, where you, where you are, what you have. In a way you can't understand, he is good and he's in control of all of it. And he's able to work through all of it, his purpose in your life. And so an author named Jay Duma, who wrote a book on the Ten Commandments, he writes this. The starting point of the Tenth Commandment is very simply this. Your own house is the best one for you. Your own spouse is the most pretty or handsome for you. And your own job lies the most fruitful development of your abilities. We can be content in whatever situation we find ourselves if we trust that God has given me the gifts I have and he's given me the opportunities I have and he's in control of all the outcomes and our cravings for more, more, more can be quieted if we trust that he is fully in control of all of it. He, he knows how to deal with all of it and he has given it to us because that is his purpose to accomplish his purpose in our lives, through our lives. But I think the question that comes out of that the, the, the hope is that oh, God can accomplish his purpose no matter where you are right now. But to be satisfied with that, that would mean that we would have to become content with God's purpose, his desires over and above my desires, what I want. Why would I be satisfied with God's purpose and, and think that that's such a good thing if that may mean and almost definitely means not getting exactly what I want? Why would you want that? Well, the answer is that we should want God's purpose for our lives and we should want his contentment because it's true and it's deep, it's real, and everything else is just false advertising. That's why we should want it. His purpose is to deepen our desires because you don't love yourself quite as well as you think you do. You don't want enough. You want, I want things that are so shallow and temporary. 
Jeremiah Burroughs, he was a Christian centuries ago who wrote a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And he wrote this, which I think is really profound. Many men think that when they are troubled and have not got contentment, it's because they have but little in the world. And if they had more, then they would be content. That is just as if a man were hungry and to satisfy his craving stomach, he should gape and hold up in his mouth and take in the wind. And then should think that the reason why he's not satisfied is because he's not got enough of the wind. No, the reason is because the thing is not suitable to a craving stomach. See, imagine the situation where you're walking along and you're hungry, and so you drink in that heavy boon wind. And the more you drink it, it doesn't satisfy you. You just get hungrier, and you think, I just need some some more wind. And so you go up to where the wind turbine is, and you go up to the strong gusts. No, you don't need wind. You need real food. The point may seem obvious, but we are so often trying to satisfy our souls with things that are so vapid and empty, and we don't need those. We need God, and he's more than enough. We should want the contentment God gives because it is the best for us, and it's, it is thriving life. His purpose is the good life. It leads us to, to live the way we're meant to. When we seek the contentment and receive the contentment God gives, we can be at peace with ourselves. You can look at your gifts and you can be at peace with what you have. You can look at your body and be at peace with how God has formed you because he did it intentionally. It's from his hand. And when we seek his contentment, we are enabled to love others. I can rejoice in the good of other people because I don't need their good for my own good. God is more than enough. And when they suffer and grieve, I can enter into that with them and grieve with them because their loss is not my gain. I can love my friends as neighbors that I'm called to honor. So it enables us to love. And it frees you from the false advertising. It it quiets the cravings for more and more and more. And and it just opens your eyes to, to be able to see and to taste the good things that God has given you. One last semester at App. That time with a friend in a coffee shop, the friends you do have, the opportunities you do have, the gifts you do have, this enables you contentment in Jesus, enables you to actually taste those things for what they are and to taste them as good gifts, not things that are yours by rights, but things that are yours by God's kindness. And you can see them as just little glimpses, little tastes of the coming kingdom where you will be fully, entirely, and eternally satisfied at a great banquet, which is the eternal presence of being with God, your Father. All of this really brings us back to the first commandment, which is a long time ago that we talked about, which is this, you shall have no other gods but me. You shall have no other gods before me. How do we find contentment? By rejecting everything else as a replacement God and seeking God alone as your ultimate chief end and aim. And if you do that, how could you possibly crave anything more? Because there is nothing more. If he is your aim, he is yours. He assures you of that, and there's nothing more. Though he owes us nothing, God has given us himself through Jesus. He came to meet us in our emptiness, and in that place, he emptied himself and poured out his love and his own presence and invites us into thriving life. And so the invitation tonight is in the place where you are craving and longing and crying out and your desires seem overwhelming. And in that place where you are just empty, 
and despairing and discontent to give yourself to Jesus in those places and to seek him as your contentment. Ask him to be your contentment, and he will be. Let me pray. Father, thank you for uh, the good news that you are our contentment and your presence, your love is a free gift. Um, though Though you owe us nothing, you give us everything. You give us more than enough. Yes, it's in your name. Amen.